Nothing will set anger alight more intensely than betrayal. Once this fire starts to burn, for certain people, there's only one way to dampen it down and extinguish the flames. Love is an emotion that is presumed to last forever, an invisible bond between two people that is cherished, nurtured, and protected. It is the fairy tale dream, and the concept of it being transferable, changeable, and decidedly, unflinchingly in doing so is never considered. That is until it becomes confrontational and impossible to ignore. In 2018, a quiet rural farm in Earlville, Iowa, became the scene of a horror in a matter of seconds. That frosty November morning was the accumulation of months of discontent and quiet planning in a marriage that was deeply scarred. Love, betrayal, revenge, and self-preservation are the undercurrents of this case. Building an intensity 
They weave together like hissing snakes, seeking their final destination, most anticipated meal. Cold-blooded and determined, they were the driver of one man's actions that can never be reversed. Nothing would stand in their way. Just after midday on November 10, 2018, Iowa Road Deputy Luke Thompson was on duty in his squad car when he got the dispatch call. A father and his son were frantically driving an injured woman towards Manchester Regional Medical Center in Delaware County and needed urgent assistance. It took him just minutes to race along the quiet country roads and arrive at the scene. At the site of the 170th Street, In Earlville, almost in the driveway of a roadside farm, sat a red truck. A young teenage boy stood near the roadside frantically flagging down the squad car. He had pools of bright red blood staining the front of his shirt. The deputy began to assess the scene as he pulled in and threw on the parking brake. Delaware County sits in the middle of the state of Iowa. Open land, fields, and hills are the recognized landscape in this beautiful county. Farms populate much of the land, often owned by the same families for generations and passed on down from father to son. Local farmers know each other and make themselves available to help and support fellow farmers whenever they can. As Deputy Thompson ran over to the red truck, he found 43-year-old Todd Michael Mullis still on the line to the 911 operator while performing CPR on his wife, 39-year-old Amy Mullis. Their eldest son, Tristan, stood close, visibly shocked at what was unfolding before them. He was just 13 years old. That morning, the family had been working on their hog farm just a few miles along the road from where they now stood. They had two large hog barns, a small shop, and some maintenance buildings for farm machinery on their land along with the family home. The farm had been handed down to Todd from his parents. He'd been learning and working on that farm since he was 11 years old, dedicated and passionate, or the endless jobs that needed doing to keep everything running. Amy Mullis was a registered nurse, but had given up nursing a few years earlier to focus on helping with the family farm and being a full-time mom. She was more sociable than her husband, more of a people person, She was friendly and fun to be around, and more than anything, she loved being a mom to her three kids. Her youngest, Wyatt, was nine years old. Taylor was 11, and Tristan was just entering his teenage years. When the 911 operator had asked Todd to pull over, he did so at the nearest available spot to him, 
It was Ryan Krogeman's farm, a neighbor he knew well. Ryan's cousin, Michael, had been driving with his father in his own truck that day and spotted Todd's truck speed past, followed by an ambulance with lights and sirens blaring. He knew something was terribly wrong and followed the two vehicles to see if he could help. As Amy was loaded into the back of the ambulance, Todd shouted over to Michael to look after Tristan. He also told him his two teenage children were still at the Mullis farm. Michael's father offered to drive Todd to the hospital to wait news on Amy. Michael drove Tristan back to the family farm, closely followed now by two sheriff's deputies. With Amy receiving medical attention, their role was to find out exactly what happened on that farm. At 7.40 a.m. that morning at the Mullis farmhouse, before Amy joined her husband and son in the hog barn, she had sent a text message to a friend. Still very tense around here, just not sure of anything anymore, she typed. She also sent a good morning email to Jerry Frazier. He was the Mullis Farms field manager helping them in their hog operations. The relationship between Amy and Jerry had moved past the professional, and since May that year, they had been engaged in a secret, passionate affair. Jerry was also married with kids, and neither of them wanted their spouses to find out. This wasn't the first time Amy had an affair. About five years earlier, while she was working as an RN at Manchester Hospital, she had met a doctor and started an extramarital affair. Todd had discovered the affair, and the couple worked to save their marriage. They went to counseling, and, as part of their decision to move forward, Amy left her job at the hospital to focus on family life and the farm. She had grown up on a farm herself. She knew farm work, the never-ending tasks, and the long hours. The harvest season was especially busy. There was always work to be done. Soon, though, she began to feel suffocated. Amy loved being with people, doing things, and going places. On the farm all day with the kids at school, there was little that was new and little that was exciting to brighten her days. The times she did go to meet with a friend for lunch or coffee, Todd wanted to know where she was going, how long she would be, and when she would be back. He had been left distrusting of his wife since the affair. Jerry had provided the missing excitement for Amy, but it was a dangerous liaison. He was the farm's field manager. Todd knew him and worked directly with him often. He visited the farm regularly, providing them with advice and support for their hog business. Jerry provided escapism and a possible route away from farm life she was getting desperately bored of. Jerry and Amy had talked about a future together one day, but nothing was certain and no promises had been made. In July 2018, three months before that fateful morning, Todd had spotted the huge number of text messages on the phone bill to and from Jerry's cell number. Hundreds of messages between the two immediately concerned him. He spoke with Amy and Jerry and asked them outright if anything was going on. Both denied an affair. They said their communications were about the kids, their sports, and about showing farm hogs. Still worried, Todd called Jerry's wife and spoke to her about a possible affair between Amy and Jerry. She didn't think anything bad was going on and believed her husband when he said that Todd was a bit mad. A few days later, once Todd had time to think more clearly, he called Jerry and his wife and apologized for his behavior and for any distress he had caused them. 
He felt embarrassed he had jumped to conclusions. But Amy and Jerry were having an affair. And before Amy was sure Todd believed her denials, she had been frantic and panicked. She called several friends in tears, fearful of Todd's reaction and expressing concerns he would hurt her. Text message conversations show repeated statements that if she disappeared, they know it was Todd. Hull was not as well in the Mullis household as it looked on the outside. After Todd backtracked and apologized, Jerry carried on as the farm's field manager just as before. As everything calmed back down, satisfied that Todd believed they weren't having an affair, Amy and Jerry continued to see each other. Todd had asked them to tone down their texting, so they had done that. Instead, they switched their communication to email, communicating daily to and from their Gmail accounts. Imagine a podcast that covers an F5 tornado. To the degree, your favorite true crime podcast covers a serial killer or a tsunami. With the same reverence, investigative long-form podcasts explore their themes. Disaster is that podcast. Join me, host and writer Justin Drown, as I explore a new disaster each episode. Search Disaster on whatever app or site you listen to your favorite podcasts. A detective came and knocked on the door, and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to Season 2 of Proof wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. That morning, the work on the farm was becoming more urgent as the weeks passed. The Mullises had fought through the harvest season and planted their crop. Amy's grandmother had been unwell and then passed away with her uncle having a serious brain bleed not long after. Amy had spent hours at the hospital helping to support her family, leaving her less time to be at the farm. As November rolled around, 
Todd was expecting a delivery of baby hogs, and one of the barns needed prepared for them. November 10, 2018, was a cold winter day, and the ground was frozen. No good for starting on plowing or other ground work. A decision was made to work on the hog barns. Four days earlier, on November 6th, Amy had undergone some minor surgery for a medical issue she had been struggling with that year. It had been a quick procedure, but as it is with all surgery, she needed rest to recover. The last few days, she had been cooped up in the farmhouse, limited in what she could do. She wanted to help on the farm and was feeling up to doing some lighter chores. In the large hog barn, just yards from the farmhouse, Tristan began to get the small heaters out of storage and set up next to each hog pen ready for the new arrivals. Todd was working on the feeding system to help wean the hogs. Amy focused on trying to clean the light fixtures that hung up over the hogs' pens. It was a chore that involved reaching up above her head and standing on an upturned bucket so she could fully reach the fixtures to clean them. Both Todd and Tristan noticed her wobbling. Her balance wasn't quite stable. Amy felt a little dizzy and tried to carry on, but it wasn't a job compatible with her current state of recovery from her surgery. Both her husband and son reported later they encouraged her to go back inside and rest. Amy still wanted to help, so, as an alternative, Todd asked her to get the pet carrier they had stored in a shed on the property. The red shed, as they called it, was about 30 yards away from the front of the hog barn they were currently in. There were some kittens on the farm they wanted to move to a safer position away from any machinery that might be working. Amy went off in the direction of the red shed to see if she could find the carrier. The plan was for her to leave it outside the front of the shop on her way back to the farmhouse. It was the last time Amy would take that walk, as she innocently headed towards the wooden, slightly neglected storage shed. She didn't know it would soon become a scene of terror. The red shed was a rectangular building, with the only access point being a full-height, sliding door at the front. Vertical wood planks of different conditions, mainly weathered and faded, had been painted a deep red at some point in their lifetime. In the November frost, the door was stuck open about two feet, unwilling to open or close another inch. The barn door was constructed of more wood planks. They were old and worn. The paint faded in places. The door had four planks and a weather-worn wood color out of place next to the red. Maybe they had been replaced at some point, but never painted fully to match the rest. It was an hour later when Todd asked Tristan to go and check the red shed and look for his mom. There was no sign of her no pet carrier outside of the shop door. The scene he discovered is one no young son should ever have to bear to witness. As Tristan stepped inside that two-foot opening, he had looked to his left, a 30-inch wide walkway between the inside of the door and a set of large storage totes led his eyes up towards the back corner. Amy Mullis was on the floor, face down in a crouched position. Her head almost rested on the inside of the shed, her back facing her son. Protruding from her back was a corn rake. Similar in shape to a pitchfork, it was a tool with sharpened spikes at one end. Its wooden handle was now sticking out at an angle, awkwardly pointing up to the roof. 
Their sharp tines were deeply embedded through Amy's multiple layers of November clothing, piercing into her body underneath. Motionless, she was silent as her son shouted for her, trying desperately to elicit a response. Receiving nothing back, Tristan immediately began calling for his father. We went in to clean up, change our boots, and uh, as we were doing that, me and Tristan were standing in front of the window at that time, and I go, well, that pet carrier over there, and he goes, yeah, I wonder what happened. We didn't know. Well, maybe she couldn't get it out of there. I don't remember which one of us said those words, but we were having a conversation of why isn't it over there. And then Tristan said, you want me to go check it out? And I said, yeah, why don't you go over there and check it out? If she might not have been able to get it out of there. And Tristan yelled. I looked over and I was kind of like, what? You know. And then he yelled really loud again, and then I ran over there. I don't remember him saying anything. He was more or less, Mom. He was just, just kind of speechless. I initially looked at Tristan, and I looked over, and I seen Amy hunched up, face down, laying next to the door, leaning against the door. I more or less just dove down by her. I, I put my head down. I was trying to, I was like, Amy, Amy. I was yelling at her, trying to get her attention. I didn't know what to think. I was just looking at her, and I picked her head up a little bit, and I was... There's just nothing. It was no response. I I just wanted to help her. I just wanted to, let's let's go to the hospital. Is there something wrong? Right now, I just reacted. And I was trying to lift her up, and the, that four candle was jabbing in the the tote out the caging. And then I realized, hey, this ain't gonna work. So I I just set her down more or less. A little bit in my arm. I just reached over. I pulled the fork out. I tossed it, and I got underneath of her. And I told Tristan, "Go get the truck. We gotta go." The regional medical center sits in the main street in Manchester, ten miles away from Earlville in the Mullis Hog Farm. Its large glass-paneled wall reveals the busy bustle of the hospital inside. As Tristan was taken back to the family farm to show deputies where he found his mom, Todd had arrived at the hospital. He paced up and down outside the emergency room where medics were treating Amy. He was becoming increasingly anxious, described by those with him that morning as overexcited. Inside that room, medics were frantically trying to save Amy's life. Her lung had collapsed. Blood and air had been rapidly filling her chest. They inserted a chest drain to try and alleviate the pressure. They gently but urgently fed a tube down her throat to breathe for her. Their heroic efforts were in vain. The injuries Amy Mullis had suffered were too great for her to survive. She was pronounced dead shortly after she arrived at the hospital. Dr. Craig Thompson was the director of medical services at the hospital. He also served as the medical examiner for Delaware County when required. He began to focus on what happened to Amy and how she had sustained these injuries. Normal procedure for any death under usual circumstances, but what he found did not match the information he had been given by the paramedics who brought her in. The death of Amy Mullis was not as straightforward as it seemed. 
Shortly after arrival at the hospital, I uh, understood that uh, Amy Mullis had been pronounced dead, that uh, Amy had been injured falling on a, on a corn rake that was upended, and uh, that she was found that way and that uh, it was removed. There was concern uh, regarding the mechanism of injury. In this case, the patient was already disrobed. Uh, so uh, as part of resuscitative efforts to look for wounds in emergency medicine, you're always wanting to make sure you're not missing something. We always try and determine cause of death. Uh, we do that whether it's a medical examiner's case or not. Uh, the secondary thing, though, is to make sure that if we're uh, presuming it's accidental, if that's the story we're hearing, that the injury matches the story. Notably, she had six puncture wounds across the back. It got my attention, certainly, to look at the uh, point of entry, how that would have occurred. Uh, I was interested in looking at the instrument that she fell on. There were basically two sets of injuries. There were the puncture wounds to the right posterior thorax, uh, the right posterior chest, and there were then injuries anteriorly uh, in the chin area, in the zygomatic area, which is the cheekbone area, uh, around the ear on the left, and over both patella, the kneecaps. Um, and there were also uh, some contusions and abrasions over the uh, uh, dorsum of each hand, the knuckles of each hand. I found it very difficult to see how uh, four tines could cause six holes in a single impact. I contacted the state medical examiner's office. Presently, if you need more data in an injury like this, you contact a forensic pathologist. I am not one. I have background in, in uh, uh, medical examiner work, but I, I need at times more data than that. So I talked to uh, Dr. Cruz, who's a forensic pathologist, and asked her to do an autopsy in the interest of getting more information. Amy had six sharp force injury wounds across her back, her skin bearing the trauma of the impact of the corn rake. She had dark red bruising on her face, around the left side of her jaw, and moving toward her ear. There were abrasions and scrapes on her knuckles and knees. There were tiny circular wounds on her ear and neck area, right around where her earring was as if that ear had been compressed into her neck. The pattern of injuries to Amy's body was revealing a very different story from the one being told by her husband who was waiting outside. The corn rake Todd had found embedded in his wife's back had four individual tines, four long, sharp metal prongs with a slight inward curve near the tips that were designed to rake up rows of corn in farmers' fields. It was not designed to be a weapon. The corn rake on the Mullis farm had been there for as long as Todd Mullis had owned the farm. Over the years, the handle had snapped about three-quarters along the shaft, but it was still used from time to time. It moved around the farm in different locations depending on when it was being used or just being moved because it was in the way. On that morning, November 10, the corn rake had been inside the red shed leaning quietly up against one of the side panels to fall onto a corn rake that was upended. Tines pointing upwards and outwards would cause appalling injuries, but a fall onto the four tines of the corn rake 
could only cause four corresponding puncture wounds. Amy Mullis had six. Six wounds that could not have been caused by a terribly unlucky fall. Amy Mullis did not die from a shocking farming accident. She was murdered. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.